This is Minister in the Making, episode number 18. I'm B.T. Irwin. This is a podcast for church people, from the ones who stand in the pulpit every Sunday to the ones who sneak in and sit on the back pew every once in a while. The mission of this podcast is to give church people a behind-the-scenes, inside look at life in Christian ministry. Your guide is my dad, Travis Irwin, who shares the stories and wisdom he collected from almost 50 years in full-time church work. In the mid-1980s, Dad was finding his groove as a minister and as part of the Steel Avenue Church of Christ in Ashland, Ohio. While Church of Christ congregations nationwide were starting to shrink, the Steel Avenue Church of Christ was starting what would turn out to be two decades of trend-busting growth. How did this conservative congregation in small-town Ohio manage to do what so many other congregations could not do? Dad will tell you what he thinks. And we'll also talk about the time that a woman in the congregation campaigned to get Dad fired and how he handled that situation and recovered from it. We'll talk about how much education and training Church of Christ ministers need to do their jobs. And I'll also ask Dad if he thinks the things that grew the Steel Avenue Church of Christ in the 1980s will still work today. Once again, Dad is still recovering from a head cold, and he's also going through cancer treatment. So his voice is kind of raspy on this podcast. But I promise you what he lacks in vocal strength, he more than makes up for in stories and wisdom. So with that, let's go back to the 1980s. Recording in progress. Okay, so at long last, we've made it through the technical difficulties and we are live. Um, so dad, we are picking up in the mid 1980s today. That's around the time you started your fourth year as minister to the Steel Avenue Church of Christ in Ashland, Ohio. Right. Um, now in my own career, I've I found that when I go to a new organization, it takes me about three years for me to hit my stride. So uh, when would you say you hit your stride at the Steel Avenue Church of Christ? I think after we had been there about seven to 10 years, we were going full tilt. Yeah, we were. We had, we, uh, we had a good relationship with the leadership, the membership. We, we all worked well together. <clears throat> that doesn't mean we didn't have issues and problems. We all, you know, everybody does, but we were just, we were just humming along. There's an old saying about you, uh, it operates like a sewing machine and it did. And, uh, even the first few years were good. They were all yeah. good. They were adjustment years, but they were good. <clears throat> the people wanted a full-time minister. They got a full-time minister. If it didn't, if they liked him and we liked them, it, it just worked. It just clicked. It, it, just the extreme opposite of what we had experienced in Cadiz, Ohio. You, um, uh, toward the end of two episodes ago, because we had mom with us on the last one, uh, you tried out at another church uh, because yeah. a friend of yours had, had said, hey, I think you'd be good for this position. And you, you tried out for it for a couple of reasons. Um, and so that opportunity came and went as, as you were getting into the mid 1980s, and you'd been at the Steel Avenue uh, Church for about three years. Uh, were you starting to to think about that ministry as as really long term? I mean, at that point in your time there, how long were you imagining that you might 
stick around. There was a time whenever your mother and I uh, talked about retiring in, Ath in Ashland. Mm -hmm. In fact, we... Uh, <laughs> was that in your mid-30s, though? <laughs> well, let me tell you a story, and I think you can put the two pieces together. We were living on Sloan Avenue behind the church building in the church house. And uh, we bought cemetery lots in the county cemetery in Ashland County off of Highway 250 north of us. So I mean, we bought the cemetery plots, we bought the uh, markers, we bought the whole nine yards. And so, you know, we were gonna live there, we were gonna retire there, and we were gonna die there. And so, I mean, this is early because the, the Sloan house is the church house. Yeah. And we were in that house from like 81, 82, 83. Um, I'm trying to figure 84, 85, somewhere. And then we moved over to Helpman. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, early, early in our tenure there, we were talking about retiring there. Wow. Yeah. So what like, about that? That's impressive because yeah. um, you and I have talked before about how uh, ministers, uh, church of Christ preachers and, and pastors in general in Christian churches, they tend to not stay with a congregation for very long. I mean, it, the average is something like three years. Uh, so uh, what made you think at, at this early stage in your time in Ashland that I could be here for 30 years? Because you remember you were in your early to, to mid thirties at that time. 31 uh, years old. Yeah. What made you think that, yeah, I could be here 30, 30 years or more. Part of the, part of that I'm sure is naivety um idealism but things were just going so well you know and i had I, I still had only had what how many years six and a half years of experience in ministry i didn't know that things can change overnight anything can happen mm -hmm. uh so maybe a lot of that was also just wishful thinking mm -hmm. uh, but we invested a lot of money in graves yeah <laughs> and it feels, i can't believe we did that but we did yeah. they're still there and i still need to get rid of them yeah uh that's a anyway, little that's a little advertisement for any of you who are listening in Ashland, Ohio. Yes, there are a couple of I'll make, I'll make you a real good deal. Absolutely. Yeah. Give me a dad, call. Dad and mom have some plots there that they'd like yeah. to sell you. I mean, how uh, much more permanent can you get than that? Of yeah. course, we bought we bought three different houses. And yep. that's just another thing that sends a, a little signal to everybody. We're we're here to stay. Nobody ever argued with us. No one yeah. ever there were some people who tried to get me fired. Uh we may cross that bridge later on, but um, everybody, we, we, we got along. We, we, we all worked hard. Were there some people who tried to get you fired in the mid 80s? Um, yeah, it was, it was probably the mid 80s, yeah. Really? Late 80s, yeah. What happened there? Well, um, I consider all these people friends now. That kind of sounds strange to say that, but I do. And I love these people very dearly. They're very sweet people, very good people. Uh, there was a, a lady that just didn't think I was doing the work that I should be doing. And, you know, everybody has a perspective. Everybody has an opinion. And she tried three times getting me removed. And uh, I, I stayed there for 22 and a half years to the point where I burned out and had to leave. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, and I, I, I understand where she's coming from. And, and I, you know, I know, I know she, I know she had the best interest of the church in mind and her family in mind, but uh, that's what happened. No, we'll get into a lot of detail or, or names. I won't do that at all. But it just worked out to where I was able to stay uh, another 
14 or 17 years. Yeah. What was it that, what was it that she wanted you to do different? You said she felt like you weren't doing the job that you were supposed to do. What, what change did she want to see in your ministry style? Well, maybe, maybe I'll be more, more, that I would be more supportive of of different ministries. Uh, Once again, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail to, to, to her and her family and to me and my family, that's, that's just the past. I have no hard feelings. Yeah. In fact, uh, we've done things with this, with this lady and her family and had a good time. We had good, good fellowship. So it's just one of those things, you know, and, um, it, it happened and, uh, we moved on and they moved on and they were members of our congregation and they were involved and they worked hard. They did a lot of good. They contributed a lot. And, and that's church works like that. It's just a crazy. Sometimes it's just a little, just a little crazy. And was that uh, the first time though, in your, in your life working in the church that any member of a congregation that you served actually tried to get you removed? Yeah. And how did that feel? Well, it what, felt what was little, that like for you? It felt a little awkward. It felt really awkward. Um, but I felt like the leadership had my back. And I told him, I said, listen, guys, <clears throat> I don't want to put you in a bad position. I said, if there's something not right here, let's, let's talk it out. Let's find out what it is. If I can correct it, I'll correct it. If I can't, then, you know, I'll, I'll make a change. I'm, and, I, and I meant it then. I meant it. And I meant it, meant it now. Uh, and I, I always just gave them, I just said, you guys take it. You know, you find out what's going on and get back with me. And, and uh, if we need to make a change, we'll make a change. And uh, they did due diligence. And of course I stayed there another, I guess, 15 years or yeah. 17 years, give or take. Yeah. How did you that, go on dad? I hate to bring that up, but that's, that did happen. Yeah. And like I said, I have no, I have no hard feelings. I, I just, I'm not bitter about that at all. When that, when, when something like that happens, I don't know if most people in the kinds of jobs that they do, can really relate to that situation because when you're the minister, all right, your job, your calling from the Lord is to care for and feed the people in the church. Um, And so you have a member of your congregation who has taken action against you you know, has, has made moves to get you removed from your job, the place where you've bought cemetery plots and you're raising your children and everything's going well. Here's, here's one person who has decided that she wants you gone. And after the elders do their due diligence and um, it's clear that you're going to stay, she's still part of your congregation. Yeah. You're still uh, her minister. Yeah. How did you handle that? that? Because that's a situation that 99% of the people, you know, who aren't ministers would never encounter in their lives. So h- how did you handle that situation when you started to move on? There's, there's two or three things. One of all, one, first of all, I had the backing of the leadership. Number two, mm-hmm. there was a lot of prayer. Um, a lot of prayer that Lord helped me to love this person with the love of Christ and I realized also that I had work to do and my focus had to go, had to go in that direction. 
but when you look at it into an assembly and you see that person sitting there, it's kind of, it, it does make things difficult. So what you do, you just kind of look the other way. Hmm. You may even pray during a sermon, hmm. but you know, over a period of time, things got better. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't get into all those details, but they got better for a while. And then, um, and uh, the, the end of that story is, is tragic for this family. So my heart goes out to them. Uh, and, uh, but anyway, my focus was the work. That's what yeah. got me through. And your mom was a very supportive. The elders were very supportive and uh, a lot of prayer. Uh, there's always, there have always been people in church where there always will people, be people in church work that are, they're different. Um, they love the Lord. They go, to, they go to church. They love the brethren, but they just respond differently to, to people. And uh, they're sometimes called difficult people. And you just, you just need to realize that that happens. Sometimes I think you're the difficult person, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes I am the difficult person. Your mother will attest to that. But anyway, seriously, uh, it's true in every congregation. And you just, and at age 31 or 32, I realized that and, and had to make up my mind, am I going to allow this to drive me and define me or am I going to keep working? And we just kept working. We, we just yeah. had too, we had too much going on, too much good going on mm-hmm. to bring it to a halt. However, as I said before, if the leadership had wanted to make a change, we would have made a change. Mm-hmm. I will never, ever be somewhere where I am um, undermining or hurting the work of the church. I'll, I'll get it. I'll go out of the road because mm-hmm. I'm the work. The cause of Christ is more important than me. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the attitude, and that's what got me through it. But a lot of, a lot of us just we were so cotton picking busy. There were so many good things going on. Plus, I had three little kids, and uh, that I love dearly still to, to this day. And so that, that's kind of that's, that's the preacher's answer to the, to your question. It's a long answer. Yeah, I got to ask one more question. We'll get to the good stuff in a minute, but. Um... Like I had a situation when I ministered to a church a few years ago where I offended, uh, I offended uh, a woman in the church to this day. I still don't know what I did, Uh, but she had, she had a couple of other families there that were friends of hers and they, um, they decided that they wanted me, they wanted me out and uh, it divided the church because you had these three families that said you know if if he's still there we're not gonna we're not gonna be there anymore right and then the the majority of the families and the the leaders of the church still supported me and um what ended up happening in that situation is i left because i felt like i didn't need to be there right i needed to be somewhere else uh, apart from that situation also because i didn't want to be um the reason that a church that had been unified before was, was splitting, you know, over me. And those three families ended up leaving anyway, after I left and the families that stayed, uh, thrived. That church grew 10 times, uh, in its original size over the next few years. And the, the families that stayed behind told me to this day, they still don't know what, uh, what offended those, those three particular families. But I spent months trying to uh to reconcile 
with them and trying to find out what I had done so that I could ask for forgiveness and, right. you know, patch up the relationship. Right. And it became a, the, that time just became such a drag on me personally and a drag on the entire church. Right. So we had a lot of positive energy and momentum. Um, and that just was sapped during yep. that, you know, it was about a six yep. month period. It just, it sapped me, it sapped the church. So my question is when, uh, when the elders did their due diligence and uh, you stayed and the, the woman that wanted you to go also stayed, I mean, did, did you put any energy or time into um, your relationship with her personally? No. Uh, you said for a moment there during sermons, you'd pray, but you'd look away. Um, or is that a relationship that you decided was unsafe or that it wasn't going to do any good for you or her to, to try to have a relationship? What do you do in a situation like that? I'm asking for all the other ministers out there that might be young, <laughs> and uh encountering a situation like this how how much effort should you put into you know building well, a relationship or patching things up with with a difficult member well the bible teaches if you know someone's offended by you you're to go to them it's matthew 5 matthew 18 is if you know you've offended somebody you need to go to them and make it right god is all about reconciliation that's what that's probably his middle name if he does have a middle name so God is big into relationships. So normally, under a normal situation, I would have done one of those two things. Um, and I may, I may have done one of those. I don't, just to be honest with you, I don't remember right now. But um, basically, we left it the way it was. Sometimes when you leave things alone, they kind of resolve themselves. People's tempers kind of cool down a little bit. And we... We felt, that's leadership in myself, we felt just, you know, let's let this go. Um, it wasn't an accusation, it wasn't a terrible accusation. It wasn't a accusation of immorality or hypocrisy or anything like that. And so the elders decided, let's just let this go. Mm -hmm. And uh, And then, you know, and once again, we had an open-ended open -ended policy. If there's, if you have any concerns, let's get together and talk about it. If I need to step step aside, I will. And we, we really didn't have any more issues after that. And it went away. I had, I had one other lady get upset with me. Uh, uh, and her body language told me that she was upset. They came to church and everything. And uh, when her body language just got to me. Just, she just ignored me when she went out the door and frowned at me. I thought, oh, this hurts. And, and we're good friends. So I'll go see her. And what I found out was is that I had put something in the church bulletin about her brother. He had cancer. And I said, Mary's brother is dying of cancer. Well, I stated the truth. But that probably was not appropriate. Um, mm -hmm. It hurt her very deeply. Mm. And I said, Mary... I, I feel like I've done something horrible. And she finally told me, I said, please forgive me. That's just immaturity on my part. That's, that's not something that anybody wants to hear. Your brother is dying with cancer. They don't want to hear it. Yeah. I don't want to hear it either. I didn't want to hear it when my dad was dying with cancer or my sister. So anyway, I, I made that mistake with Mary and Mary and I reconciled. 
she gave me a Bible before she died, and I still have it to this day. Hmm. Anyway, so no, that's another story. Those are two that come to mind automatically. True or false? This is not in the questions, but I just, as we transition from this line of questioning, which was not planned today, by the way, like true or false, in every congregation, there is one. There is one person. <laughs> There's one person? Yeah. That doesn't want you there? Yeah. I read a uh, article, oh, probably 40 years ago. I think it was in Church Leadership Magazine. I can't remember where it was in particular, but some uh, some uh, Christian pastor wrote an article entitled The 2%. He says, there's 2% of your congregation that, do not, that did not want you to come. They do not want you to stay, and they will be happy when you leave. Yeah. And I thought, well, what is my 2%? Yeah. Well, there was a lady in, in Akron that uh, was hard to get along with. I think she would have been happier if a former preacher had come back. And I remember that specifically, and, and you probably know her name, but don't repeat it. She's dead and gone on her her reward. And Kat is... Um, I can't think of anybody there that really wanted, well, I take that back. There was a, you know, if you think long enough, you come up with these names and faces. There was this uh, younger couple. They were middle-aged, very nice couple, uh, very well-known in the community, very well-loved and appreciated in the church. Hey, I, I liked them, and, uh, but uh, the man's wife did not like me. Mm -hmm. And uh, after I left, uh, the next preacher got an earful about how she did not like me and how terrible hmm. I was. Yeah. So, and so the, you had that, and but she wasn't vocal when I was there. Of course, I wasn't there very long either. And then, of course, when we went to Ashland, uh, I'm talking about these two ladies. And um, but you know, the thing about it, uh, one of the ladies is gone, but we were friends, and when she died, we were friends. Mm -hmm. And this other lady, I, I think we're friends to this day. She's had some. She's been through some horrible times, um, and I tried to be there for her. I was there for her and she's been very supportive of me and prays for me. I know she prays for me. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. And that's why we, we, we need to be careful how we treat these, how we handle these things, because at the time these people are truly upset and they, it, they something needs to be said or done to try to reconcile and then move on. In, in my case, I was very fortunate, very blessed that both these ladies were very, very gracious about it. So how would you describe the Steel Avenue Church of Christ in the mid-1980s? It was an evangelistic congregation. It was a mission-minded congregation. It was a giving congregation. It was a working congregation. Uh, it was made up mostly of older people. Uh, they called it the Monroe County Church of Christ because the people that were members of that congregation were from Monroe County, Ohio. They were from Southern Ohio. Uh, just just to me unreal good people uh i'd never met anybody like john kerr or jack abels or um jim pitney or dean dale kendall or um ray and rosemere brighton booker and greg and dorothy abels and roger and rosalie shriver um and i'm leaving a lot of the hill family the kerr family the brighton booker family um and the list goes on and on and on. Those, those are kind of your core families there at the church. Uh, but they just had a delightful 
attitude. They were they were creative people. They were helpful people. Um, and they just they they treat they didn't treat anybody different. If you were a total stranger and came in the door, they treated you like you'd been a member there for twenty years. And uh, we we didn't we didn't fight. We didn't fight over politics. We didn't fight over coronavirus. We didn't have coronavirus, but we didn't we didn't we didn't fight. We just didn't fight. We had some disagreements, but we didn't fight. We didn't get ugly. We didn't quarrel. Uh, we were busy doing good, good vacation Bible schools, good gospel meetings, raising money for the church camp. A lot of people went to church camp. Tons of our kids went to church camp. Tons of our members worked in church camp. Uh, we were busy doing church camp, VBS, gospel meetings, week by week Bible classes, Bible studies, financial peace university, um, and other ministries. It, I don't want to paint a picture like it was easy because it wasn't easy because everybody was working hard. People got tired and things were happening in our culture that were going to change all that pretty soon too. When more and more of our ladies went back to work, it hurt the, it hurt the ministry of the church in a big way, but that's what was going on. So the church was, was growing and yeah. we're not going to, we're not going to get into two statistics here, but you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, in fact, I wrote a, a blog post, uh, I think last week, where I was um, thinking about how Church of Christ congregations uh, shrank 12% nationwide yeah. during the period that you were with the Steel Avenue Church of Christ. So yeah. in the same period of time that uh, most Church of Christ congregations were shrinking, uh, the Steel Avenue Church of Christ uh, eventually doubled in size, more than doubled in size while you were there. So y'all really bucked the national trend uh, in terms of your growth. And so I, I think that growth, if my memory serves, serves me, that growth really started in the, in the eighties and accelerated through the nineties. Um, what you just rattled off a bunch of stuff that was going on at the church. Could you point to uh, a couple of things that you would say contributed the most to the congregation's growth during that period of time in the in the 80s well i'm going to mention something first before i do that jack gladwell i think jack gladwell set the tone for the church being evangelistic and jack preceded me <coughs> there was one preacher one year between us but jack set that agenda anyway what did we do here's what we did Here's what the members did in Ashland. The members would bring their friends to church. And what I would do on Monday evening around 6.30, I would call, let's say Jim and Sue brought John and Sally. I would call John and Sally and say, hey, we sure appreciate you coming to visit us yesterday. Did you meet any people you know? Oh yeah, we know half the people there because we grew up here. Oh good. I said, can I run by for about 15 minutes? Yeah, come on over small town, I could run over real quick. So I visited John and Sally, we talked, and I tried to figure out what their interest was so far as spiritual things. I could do that pretty quick. Met the family, got, got familiar with their, the pictures on the walls in the house. I said, um, there's a lot of different ways I approach. One of them was, do you, believe the, do you believe the Bible is God's inspired word of, God's inspired word? Oh yeah, never had anybody say no. I said, do you understand the Bible? They said, no. I said, can I come back Thursday night for about 
30 or 40 minutes and kind of show you how it all fits together so you can say you, you, you then you can look at the bible to figure out you know how, how it works didn't you understand it well yeah i'd be interested in that sure so i'd set up a study on monday night come back thursday night study with them maybe 30 minutes to an hour i didn't want i wanted to keep my word if i said 45 minutes i was done i was out the door and usually i set up went ahead and set up a formal study to where we actually went through a gospel the gospel of mark and we, with the book of acts if they had no bible knowledge we, we did the jewel miller film strips because it gave them a lot of bible knowledge all at one time but that's what we did over a period of time. And 90, 98% of the time we baptized them. But it was the members bringing the friends to church that gave me the opportunity to set up the Bible study with their friends and teach them and baptize them. Mm -hmm. So I, it wasn't like I was out knocking doors, getting all these prospects on yeah. my own. Did people walk in that we didn't know? Yeah, they did that too. But we know we, we have anywhere from 10 to 20 to 30 baptisms a year simply because people brought their friends to church with them. Now you don't see them much of that anymore, but yeah. it does happen. I have so many questions about that. One uh, is people brought their friends to church. And right. I want to know, because I don't remember, I was too young uh, to remember. Was that, uh, was that the culture of the church before you came there? So you talked about Jack Gladwell's legacy uh, right. at the congregation. Right. Was it just natural that people in the Steel Avenue Church of Christ brought their friends to church? That's just what they did? Or did you uh, in the 80s uh, encourage members to bring their friends to church and uh, work on you know, uh, trying to get them to, to do that more and more? Yeah, I think, I think it was a little bit of both. And here's the follow-up question to that. Um, for people to, to bring their friends to church, I think it's, I've always thought it was intimidating to invite people to church. Um, it can be. Yeah, it can be, right? So, you know, if you're going to invite people to church, I feel like there's got to be a really strong motivation to do that. And, you know, it can be, because the Bible says to do it and you're afraid to disobey the Bible. So I better bring my friends to church. You know, it can be that you're afraid your friends are going to go to hell if they don't come to church and find, find Jesus. Uh, or it could be that you really like your church and you're really excited to share your church with your, your friends. Um, what do you think motivated people in the steel Avenue church of Christ to bring their friends to church? I think they love people. They love people. And the, they thought the gospel was good news and it is some of the couples we taught and baptized then they would invite their friends and they would invite their friends because of what they had found hmm. you've heard the phrase it's one one beggar telling another beggar where he can find bread yeah so uh after a while once we got some momentum going and some baptisms going mm -hmm. some of the adult young adults in many cases young adults not always but sometimes young adults they would invite their friends get another bible study baptize them and then we go from there that's the way it's done um one person at a time and one relationship at a time i was talking to russell howard over at marion a few weeks ago and he talked about one man that was responsible for 27 people mm -hmm. and uh if you really love people and you got good news your friends are going to want to know what you got mm -hmm. but you get you got to have that attitude it's not much so much 
getting the getting them to go to church is a matter of getting them to fall in love with Jesus and follow him. Mm-hmm. And if you're in love with Jesus, it's gonna catch. Uh funny story and then a, a follow-up question to that. Funny story is that uh, I remember that you know we had those little cards that we asked visitors to fill out. So yep. in the backs of the pews, you know, you had that little card on one side it said member. And on the yep. other side, it said visitor. So yep. uh, uh, someone, I think someone would encourage the visitors to fill out the card and then we'd pass them down and put them on the end of the aisle, right? And the ushers would come and collect the cards. Thank and you. those visitor cards made it to you at some point during the service. And so at the very end of the service, uh, you would you would get up and you would read off yeah. the, the names yeah. of all the visitors. Yeah. Yeah. And you did that forever. Um, you, you, uh, you read off the names of the visitors. You wouldn't make them stand. There wouldn't be anything, you know, embarrassing, but, um, that's a pleasant memory. And a funny memory is that there are a couple of teenagers that caught onto that. I don't know if you remember this and they started filling out those visitor cards with names of like celebrities. (laughs) Do you, and, And, and so I don't think you actually look through the cards before you got up front, you just read through them. And so there are a few times where you read off the name of, you know, like Bernie Kozar or something. And, and, you know, everybody would start looking around like turning around to, you know, where's Bernie Kozar sitting, you know, what's he doing here today? Um, So that's a funny story. So the, the, the serious question though, is, um, people brought their friends and then you, you did a follow-up visit on Monday. Right. And then you went in and did a Bible study and you said you baptized 98% of those people, yeah. you know, like 20 or 30 a year. The question is how much of the growth then that took place was dependent on you. If you hadn't followed up with those people and you hadn't studied the Bible with them in their homes, how many of them do you think would have eventually been baptized and become part of the church? Think about it. We are, Paul says, we are, we're only vessels. Mm-hmm. Okay, Paul told the Corinthians, we're only vessels. The gospel, the power's in the gospel. I was just, I was just the instrument. I'll tell you a little story, go back to those cards. Number one, I never did want to read those cards because uh, I'm afraid I messed up somebody's name, which I did several times. And uh, Robert Stanley, if you're listening to this, I'm coming to get you. Robert Stanley was a member of our congregation. He married into the Porter family. He's in Wilmington, North Carolina now, but Robert was, was one that would fill those cards out and put uh, basketball celebrities okay. things on there. It was Robert. It was you, Robert. I know it was you, buddy. Uh, right. It was funny at the time. It's funny now. It's funnier now than yeah. it was. Then. But anyway, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a chance to read the cards. They just handed me the cards and zoom, live and in color. You got to read yeah. the names off, you know. Nowadays, uh, I would not do that. People don't want that done. Yeah. You used, um, be, used to be a time when people had the visitors stand up. Yep. Visitors don't want to stand up. They don't want to be recognized yep. that way. We've, we've been to churches like that. I, I, the, the spirit of the question is not, yeah, I thought you might interpret it as, hey, Travis Irwin is really great. But really, this, the spirit of the question is, you know, if a church is going to grow, you know, you, it, if you were doing 20 to 30 baptisms a year, um, you know, that was, that was more than 10% of your, your membership. So you were growing at a clip of 10 to 20% a year for some stretches of time. And if you continue to grow 
at a clip of 20, 10 to 20% a year. And all of those Bible studies and all those baptisms depended on the minister that the church hired. Eventually, there's not enough minister to go around for all of that follow-up and all those Bible studies and all of those baptisms. You see what I'm saying? So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about your eventual, um, I'm thinking about your, eventually you, I think you burned out more than once personally, but you reached times where you were exhausted and you were tired and you were worn out. And, um, there was a, um, you know, what, what, there was a drop in membership after you left. And that's not a, that is not a testament to Travis Irwin. I'm not saying that people were there because for you, but what I am saying is that the congregation did rely on you to do a lot of that Bible study work. And so looking back on it now, do you feel like in the eighties, when the church started to grow, there was a missed opportunity for you to multiply yourself or to think about how are we going to sustain this growth rather than being dependent on one man? You know, that's, that's just impossible. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Second Timothy two verse two comes to mind <clears throat> that, that was a great failure on my part. I did have other people help me in Bible studies. Bill Hyman was one. Uh, Don Hyman was one. Uh, there are probably some others I can't think of right now. I'm going blank. But you are correct. Um, my, my tendency was to just do it myself. Mm. And I, I did involvement. I'm still doing involvement for 12 or 13 years. And that's one of the rules. That is, you need to multiply yourself and you need to stop having an attitude. Nobody can do it as well as I can. Mm. Or I'm the only one that can do it. Uh, just to be blunt about it, it's ungodly to think that way. Mm. And I know that now. And it doesn't do anybody any favors. So instead of taking the time to train people and to multiply myself, I just did it. Mm. And of course, the, uh, the uh, labor got more and more and more and more. And I regret that. Uh, a lot of what happened after I left is a result of my hard-headedness and my uh, foolishness. And so if the Ashland people are listening, I want to apologize to them um, because they were, they were doing everything they could. And they were very supportive. Even the elders asked me, is anything wrong? And I lied to them. I said, nothing, nothing's wrong. Everything's great. And I apologize to them for that. But I'm, I'm chasing rabbits now, so I apologize. I, I want to ask you a quick question. Now, remember, everybody, Dad did not go to school for, for the kind of work that he was doing. Um, Dad went to, to college for church education. So, um, Dad, you were, you were reaching the 10-year mark in your ministry, and you just told us what you did to, to baptize people, right? Um, you kind of had a method. Did you learn that method? You didn't learn it in college. Did you learn that method from your dad? Did you learn it from some of your preacher friends? Did you figure it out on your own just by, by doing it? Where did you come up with your, your technique for? Uh, I took class. We, we, 
when we were members at Holmes Road in Memphis, Ben McKnight held a uh, workshop on soul winning. Um, I probably took a class on that in college. I probably uh, I learned a lot from your papa, uh, who had as many as 30 Bible studies going on a week. I don't know how he did that. But listening, watching, also some common sense. Uh, Doug Pell helped, helped me. He had a class on that at Westside. Um, and I learned somewhere in all that, that all you have to do is ask. Hmm. The, worst, the worst thing people can say is, no, I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. And if they do, you just walk away. Mm-hmm. You go to somebody who doesn't want to study. And so the, the mechanics, the logistics of Bible study, uh, I'm still working on. And I, I, finally, I finally got it to a point after about uh, 20 years of ministry or 25 years of ministry where, where I really felt comfortable with it. But I also realized that uh, a lot of methodology depends upon your student. Mm-hmm. You can't always use the same mm-hmm. method and approach. Yeah. But you can always ask that first question. Mm-hmm. Would you be interested in studying this? Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible has something to say about your question. Can we study that together? Mm-hmm. Yes or no? And then you go from there. I, um, this is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's important. I had a, some friends over for dinner on Sunday night and we ended up sitting out on the patio till 11, 11:30. And most of what we talked about was church. And, yeah. uh, it was a lively conversation. And there was a point in the, in the discussion when someone at the table talked about how the things we did back, back then, you know, and, and by back then, I don't know if we're talking about a specific time, but uh, two of us at the table grew up in the church of Christ. And so the things that worked back then don't work anymore. And I found myself disagreeing with that. Okay. So my question to you is you, uh, people brought friends to church, right? You contacted those friends and asked if you could stop by and you know answer their questions about the bible like to you know you know and and a lot of them said yes and you stopped by and you talked about the bible for 45 minutes and you said 98 percent of those people eventually were baptized and became members of the church do you think that still works i think relationships work mm-hmm. relationships work um our culture towards the end of my work in Ashland in 2003, it got more and more difficult to get a Bible study. Yeah. The culture was changing then. Mm-hmm. However, in today's culture, the trump card is always relationship. Mm. It's not what you know. It's, it's who you know and who you love. So if, if I have a relationship with you or somebody else and it's a good relationship, I'm more likely to get a study or a conversation going because you trust me mm-hmm. and if you look at jesus jesus always started with relationship the pharisees maybe not but someone that was lame or blind or whatever it was about relationship and and I, that's my philosophy that is you build that relationship you can teach anybody but people nowadays don't trust like they used to they don't trust they definitely don't trust uh, preachers anymore, which I can understand that. But there's some bad ones out there. Hmm. Uh, but 
but once you win their trust, you don't want to manipulate people. You don't want to use people, but you do want to love people and you want everything to fall into its natural pattern. And you need to live the Christian life so they see something radically different in you. They see the light of Jesus in your life. If you have a good relationship and you live consistently your beliefs, they're more likely to open up to you. They won't be afraid of you. They'll be more likely to trust you. But it's it's always been about relationships that would never change. Yeah. But a lot of people just don't want to work on relationships. It takes too much time and effort. Yeah. I I was the person at the table who said that I think the way we used to do it um, will still work. And I think I think we're contracting because we're not uh, we're not having relationships. Everything you said about what you did in the 80s was relational. Bringing friends to church, asking people questions, getting right. to know them personally, and just answering their answering their questions. Um, and those are all relationship right there. Yeah. And um, I think it takes someone who's willing to, to take the time to do it, uh, right. to care enough to do it. I think your secret sauce, Dad, has always been that you genuinely like people. Um, you genuinely like people. You're genuinely interested in people. You genuinely love them. And that's always yeah. obvious to people from the first time that they meet you, that yeah. there's just nothing shifty or shady about you. Um, there's, so, an saying, there's an old saying goes like this. People don't care how much you know till they know how much you yeah. care. Do you feel like and when I think about your ministry, I, I remember all the Bible studies. I knew Thursday night was Bible study night for you. Uh, I, I knew you were studying the Bible with a lot of people. But you were the kind of guy that would go to the hospital and go to the funeral home and go uh, sit in on crisis situations for families that were not even members of our church. They were relatives of members of our church or friends of members of our church. And so you know, how much do you think the, the fact that you would show up at those times spoke volumes to people about the gospel that you were also preaching and teaching them? Well, I hope it, I hope it made the right impression. Yeah. And, uh... I want to, I want to ask you a question about, uh, training and education here real quick because i just i just asked you who taught you to do it the way that you did it you mentioned several things in the mid-1980s you got uh your master's degree right yeah right uh so uh you you what what is your master's degree in and where did you get it it's in, it's in textual studies textual did, studies did a lot of study in the old testament also the new testament yeah and you got that from where at that time, it was called Alabama Christian School of Religion. It's called Ambridge University now. Okay. Uh, and you started working on that in Cadiz? Or was yeah. it? Okay, yeah. you were in Cadiz when you started grad school. So yeah. um, I, I want to ask you about that in particular because uh, way back in 2003, I decided to go to grad school uh, at Abilene Christian University and get a master's degree in divinity. And, you know, I stopped before I finished. Um, and when I was, when I was looking into going to grad school, uh, you tried, you gently tried to discourage me from it. And you said, and I quote, the brethren don't care about master's degrees. <laughs> okay. In quote, 
Um, and that's not the only time you said it. I think you said it to me about 10 times. Really? Uh, yeah. The brethren don't care about graduate school. So what did you mean by that? And did you believe that before, did you believe that before you finished graduate school or after graduate school? Obviously you believed it after because you were telling me. So, so tell us what you meant by that. Wow. You're putting me on the spot, buddy. Um, I, I used an illustration last time we were on here, I think, or time before last, about a good friend of mine who had a doctorate degree in family counseling. And, uh, and I said, you know, some people hold you in suspicion because you have too much education. He says, I know that. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes in the churches of Christ, and this not only applies to churches of Christ, but across the board, there are people that hold education in disregard or low esteem. I don't know if it's jealousy or ignorance on their part. I don't know. Don't really care. But the, they're generally speaking, uh, during those days, it may be different today. But during those days, uh, it made, made no difference to the brethren if you had the education or not. They weren't going to pay you anymore. Mm. Probably not pay you any less, but not pay you any more. Not going to regard you more highly. Uh, so that's what it, what I meant by that. And, and uh, some, sometimes there, there are people that have absolutely no formal education that have done famously well in ministry. Now, I'm not against formal education because it's obvious that I'm, I'm for it. But the point is, is that what I was saying to you was this, is if you think this is your, your silver bullet or your, the golden key mm-hmm. or the golden ring, this is not it. Mm-hmm. That's what I was saying. Yeah. Uh, I would never discourage you from getting more education, especially now I wouldn't, but there are, there are pre, there are churches that the, the whole, the whole, the whole culture has changed because we used to be a very agricultural uh, culture when I was a little boy. And even when I, even when I was going to Ohio, probably to where those people, God love them, are sweet people. Uh, a lot of them just didn't see the importance of an education, kind of like the people in Cadiz, mm-hmm. Ohio. Mm-hmm. And they, they function very well. They do very well. They're very effective. But that culture's changed. Most, most of our kids nowadays are going off to tech school or going to the military or going off to college. We want our children to be uh, highly educated for obvious reasons. One mm-hmm. is to be able to get a decent job and decent pay. And so I'm, I'm talking about church people now. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, as a whole, we look differently at education now than we did 45 or 50 years ago. And uh, when I said agriculturally, I'm probably getting trouble by my farmer friends, and I apologize for that. Well, let me rescue you because but I think there, that, there was a different way of thinking is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I'll, I'll rescue you here because I'm not talking about education in general. I'm talking okay. about in the Church of Christ. And remember, one of our stated beliefs in the church of christ is the priesthood of all believers so we don't ordain we don't ordain ministers in the church of christ Uh, and we may be one of the only branches of the christian family tree where our ministers don't have to get a formal education and then be ordained Um, and uh there are, are some good things that come from that. And I think there's some really bad things that come from that. Yeah, uh, because yeah. my belief is that if you're going to, you know, the Bible says that teachers are held to a higher standard. Yeah. So as a, as a teacher of the church of Christ uh, and God's people, I think you have a responsibility to, um, to, to educate yourself and train yourself right. to the best 
as best you can uh, right. because you're accountable for what you teach. Right. Uh, I guess the question really is, you know, how much education can a Church of Christ minister get before the people in the pews start to be suspicious of him, you know, of being elitist? Do you see what I'm saying? I, we have a very unique culture in the Church of Christ where I feel like there's a line that you cross where it's no longer, you know, you're getting it where the education crosses over into to perhaps being perceived as elitist. And, and there's a degree of suspicion that people feel. And I'm just wondering if, you know, when you got your graduate degree, if it, I don't remember it being a big deal in our church at all. I don't even know if people in our church knew that you got it. And um, I'm just wondering if you, if you know where that line is for, for our fellowship. Every Every church is different, has its own yeah. personality, has its own theology. And uh, sometimes it's geographic. Uh, down in Harrison County, Ohio, and education was not important. Now, that's an overgeneralization I'm making there. But at that time, I think I could, I could pretty, probably prove it pretty, pretty easily. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you, if you work in the Ohio Valley, I'm sure that's changed now because of Ohio Valley University. And uh, just think how things have changed over the past years. If you, if you live during, in the, if, you live, if you live down the Ohio Valley, uh, higher education was really not a premium to people. Mm -hmm. And once again, I'm sticking my nose out. I'll probably get it cut off, but that's the way it was then. That's the way I felt it was. It may not have been that way, but that's just what I heard and what I felt. It's kind of interesting. We talked about farmers a while ago. Farmers nowadays, they have a college degree. Yeah. They, their their parents even saw the importance of their children going on getting a higher degree in agriculture. So I think it's changing culture. We 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 have all we have a culture that's driving us to get more education, mm -hmm. and the the general person in the pew nowadays, especially in a in a metropolitan area, they expect their preacher to be highly educated. Mm -hmm. They expect him to have a doctorate degree. Years ago, when you were out in the the hay the hayfield in uh, Arkansas or Mississippi somewhere, and your, 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 uh, your preacher was probably taught school during the week and preached on the weekends, or he uh, maybe was a barber and taught preached on the weekends. The church in Athens, Tennessee was started by barbers. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah. That was a profession. Yeah. That was their, that, that was their tent making. So, you know, I don't think this is a right or wrong situation. Uh, but there comes a time when some people are suspicious of education for whatever reasons. I think it's less than it used to be. That's just my gut level. So last yeah. couple of questions here, because I just found out I've got groceries on the front porch. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, it's hot out there today too. So yeah. uh, last qu couple of questions. The, uh, the mid eighties marked the, the 10 year anniversary of you going into ministry. So you started your life of full-time church ministry, uh, in January, 1975. So, um, how are you different as a minister in January, 1985? Robocall. Uh, how was, how was it different? Yeah. So I was in that 10 year period, how did you change as a minister? I felt more, I felt more confident. I felt uh, better prepared. 
I felt uh, more accomplished. It sounds like I'm bragging, but I, I, that doesn't mean to come across. I don't want it to come across as a brag. But I, I felt um, I felt good. I didn't feel totally safe. I always had always had a fear that I would get fired, hmm. and I always had that fear in the back of my head, and that drove your mother crazy. But I felt I felt good about what I was doing. I felt like I was where I needed to be doing what I needed to do. And we were just we were just doing doing great work. Uh, mm -hmm. God was giving the increase. God was blessing it. it was, it's, it's His deal anyway. And so uh, a lot of difference. First Sunday, January 1975. I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Mm. January 1985. I know what I'm doing. I've been doing it for ten years. Yeah, I have I have a better grip on it than I did before. If we could listen to recordings of your sermons in the right. 1980s, uh, what we would what would we hear most often in those sermons? I, I would dread to say, uh, still a lot of doctrinal stuff because doctrinal preaching is to me it's easy, it's a piece of cake. Hmm. Uh, issues, I do that because it's easy. Um, when you say easy, what do you mean? Easy, like e easy to score points at the audience, or easy to prepare a sermon? Easy, to, it's easy to prepare a sermon. Got it. Yeah. The most difficult sermons for me are expository, mm. but they're the, to me, they're the best mm. sermons. Yeah. You're explaining the text as you go along. Yeah. And, and I felt like the people needed to hear doctrinal sermons and issue sermons for whatever reason. I can't remember what that reason was. So that's what it did. Yeah. And it was easy. Yeah. I had to crank out two lessons every week for Bible classes, yeah. two sermons every week for preaching. Let's do all the other visitation, do all the Bible studies, meet with the elders, blah, blah, blah. And I, and sometimes I took the easy route. Uh, there were a lot of, a lot of books that I bought and they made for, they made for some good sermon series. And uh, I'd preach on needs. If I knew there was a need in the congregation, I'd preach on that need. I'd do some study and research. I would try to do some preaching about uh, what's going to happen in the future. I would preach about the spiritual condition of, of our country. Uh, sometimes I preach about voting. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there was an issue in the church, like divorce and remarriage. I had to preach on that, which I did not like to do. Preach, getting ready to uh, add more elders, preach on elders, more deacons, preach on deacons, preach on Sunday school when you have a Sunday school drive, a church, church attendance, you know, standard stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll just say that I didn't know that there was such a thing as a sermon without three points until I went away to college. Right. <laughs> yeah, okay. I just okay. thought sermons were, I thought sermons were topical, three points, and you crammed as many scripture citations into them as you could. That, that was, yeah. so that's my memory of preaching growing up, listening to you. And then I think the first time I ever heard an expository sermon, I was like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> is this what kind of liberal is this? Right? I was like, I don't even know what this is. Um, okay. So last two questions here. Um, what was your favorite song that we sang at church in the, in the mid eighties? Can um, you think of it? Ring, probably like ring, something like ring it out or um, ring it out. Yeah. You know, ring it out. Some. Uh, stamps baxter song yeah the, the faster songs i like the faster songs that was a good song back in the day um and what's go, go on dan go ahead yeah uh what 
what scripture meant the most to you during that time in your life? Probably Philippians 4.13. I can do, do all things through him and strengthens me. One of my favorites still, especially right now. Yeah. Um, but definitely Philippians. Philippians became one of my favorites. I also did a, did a series of sermons on Romans, which was very, very helpful to me personally. Hmm. I got a lot of positive response to that. Yeah. You know, we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the theme. But Philippians was good because it talks about joy. Yeah. It talks about joy. What are you most thankful for during that time in your life? Thankful uh, for Jesus that got me through all of that. And I'm thankful for your mother who was 100% supportive. I'm sure I took your mom through a lot of grief, um, a lot of stress. Uh, your mother's a pretty even-tempered person, but she was all, she was always supportive. Uh, even when I decided to do something really stupid or foolish, like um, try out for another job, yeah, did twice, yeah, and uh, she was supportive. She was there. Uh, she was she was good with you children, a great mother with you. Um, Worked hard at the school, uh, taught classes, worked in VBS, worked at the church library for a while there in Ath or Ashland. I mean, you know, she's just the ideal person so far as I'm, but definitely for me. And uh, uh, that's what I have to say. The, the brother were wonderful. Your children were wonderful. The town of Ash Ashland was wonderful. But your mother, I could not, I could not have done anything that I did without your mother. Yeah. It's a story. Does make a huge difference to have a good partner. Sure. All right, dad. Well, that's all the questions I've got about the mid 1980s at Steel Avenue Church of Christ. I um, was going to ask you some, some questions about when you started becoming a Cleveland sports fan and why, uh, but I've got to go rescue some groceries from the, from the front porch, uh, cause it's 90 degrees out there yep, yep. and they're suffering in the heat. So thanks for taking a walk down memory lane this time. Well, thank you. We'll have mom back next time. We'll, we'll talk a little more about family life and home life during these years. Okay. That'd be great. That'd be great. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for coming along on this visit to the Steel Avenue Church of Christ in Ashland, Ohio in the mid-1980s. I hope you enjoyed it and that you picked up some inspiration and wisdom along the way. Now, I want to remind you that if you want me to ask Dad a specific question in a future episode, all you have to do is email it to me at bt at btirwin.com. That's B as in Bradley, T as in Travis, at bt. IRWIN.com. Next time, mom will be back with us again for a conversation about the home front during this period of dad's life and ministry. Ministers know what it is like to show up for church members in crises or extreme hardship or tragedy. But what happens when it's the minister and his family who are going through a crisis or extreme hardship or tragedy? Find out next time on Minister in the Making. Grace and peace.